About 10 years ago, I got an email I'd been hoping I would get for a long time. Debbie Millman, one of the greatest interviewers, one of the most talented designers, a brilliant teacher, the head of her own program at the School of Visual Arts. Debbie Millman sent me a note asking if I would come sit with her on stage in Boston and have a conversation. I said yes. And here it is. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a special episode of Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with that interview. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth. This is an ad for the Gulabis. We are a group of women who migrated to the U.S. 25 to 30 years ago. We're professional women who want to give back, and we focus on fundraising for health, education, and hunger. We currently have a Bollywood dance fundraiser going on. I hope you'll join us. Look us up at Gulabis, G-U-L as in Larry, A, B as in boy, I, S as in Sam, dot O-R-G. Thanks. Debbie's got a new book out. You can see it in the show notes. It's all about some of the interviews she's done through the years. Debbie has recorded more podcasts and better podcasts than almost any human I can think of. Her ability to dig deep, to be kind, to connect, it sits right next to her extraordinary skill as a designer and a teacher. Thanks for bringing out the best in me, Debbie. Here we go. Hello. Hello, Seth. How are you? Good morning, morning, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out so early. You said you had a big living room, but I didn't know it was this big. (laughs) At least they gave us nice, cushy chairs. Um, Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. Um, I was doing, this is our third interview. So in preparation for our interview, I figured that I would review all the work that you've done, at least all the books that you've done since the last time we spoke, um, which meant I had to read about five or six books. Um, And I know you don't like to shill books. Seth doesn't keep track of his book sales at all, which I find kind of revelatory and wonderful. Um, But I I happened to get a book that was very unexpected. Um, It's a book called V is for Vulnerable, And the subtitle is Life Outside the Comfort Zone, an ABC for grown-ups. And I thought, oh, this is nice, and I can give it to my little niece, Rebecca. She's three and a half. I'll give it to her after. Um, Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's a sort of strange... It was a strange experience because I was expecting it to be funny and sort of witty and pithy. And it's all those things, but it's also... Um, heartbreaking. It's also a little scary. And I thought, perfect. This is what we can talk about. (laughs) This is what we can speak our whole hour about. Because I think that of all the work that you've done, this has hit me sort of deepest in that it speaks to all the things that I'm worried about in my life and I worry about in general. I mean, I think that my students worry about Um, my friends worry about, and I thought it would be a a wonderful opportunity to maybe fly in the face of the very things that we worry about. So I want to start by asking you why the Lorax makes you cry. Dr. Seuss is the Lorax. I thought that um, 
maybe we have that in common, the reason why. Um, so if you can share that. Boy, you're going like right to right, you ninth know, yeah. inning here. Right, the right, there, right, right there. Can't help myself. Well, so the way this book came to be written is I did a, the Kickstarter for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them was to kickstart the writing of Icarus. And I wrote Icarus in sort of this Kerouac-like, breathless type as fast as I could thing before I spent months editing it. And one of the last things I wrote was the text of this book. Right, it was like a manifesto. And as I finished the Z, I just started crying and couldn't stop. Really? Yeah. Why? It was because it was cathartic and it was uh, about us and the people in this room and about what I was wrestling with. And I felt like in as few words as I had handy, I had managed to get to the truth of so much of what I'd been trying to say. So we were talking backstage about sort of the one line pitch of a book. How would you describe this for anybody in the audience that hasn't read it? How would you describe this? Well, you know, the thing that it's interesting, if you do design in the old method of having to send out to have type set for you and then put it on paper that was made by someone cutting down a tree and turning into, I mean, there's all these dependencies that let you create an item that is scarce. And that thing that you created that is scarce has value because it's scarce and you can sell it. In the world we live in now, none of those things are true. We don't know the people who made the internet. We don't have to pay them, right? And we type something or we design something and can be seen by hundreds of thousands or millions of people if it spreads. That's a whole new way to think about how we make things, right? Um, so why bother making a book ever again? What's the point? If I can reach 10 times as many people with a blog post as will ever read one of my books. Yeah, you've written a book and talked about why the Lord right? so, makes you cry. Right, so, but if I'm gonna make a book, there better be a reason experientially. So in this case, I wanted to capture the way, at least I felt as a three-year-old when my mom read me a book. I wanted to capture the way as a parent I felt when I read a book to my kids. And that feeling isn't something we get when we had a kid on an iPad at a restaurant and say, don't bother me. That something magical happens when we read a book to a kid or when we are read a book. So I wanted to steal that feeling. That's why the format looks like a kid's book. So that I could get to that part of your head that was, that's pre-cynical. The part of your head that isn't yet afraid of what other people are gonna think of you. The part of your head that has the bravery to, to do this work that matters. If I could steal that and get in, that's my goal. And the Lorax, what Dr. Seuss did that was so extraordinary, is we read something that feels like a kid's book, and we suddenly have to feel like the steward of the earth. We have to feel like someone who is doing this not just for our short-term pleasure, but what am I going to do for generation number seven? What is the impact I'm leaving behind? Am I making art, or am I just showing up in a factory to make a paycheck? Those big themes come right at me when I read the Lorax and I feel like he is calling me out and I feel like I need to raise the bar for myself. You write in the book about how you're trying to get under people's skin 
and trying to get people to stop being a spectator and a pawn in the industrial system that raised us. And you talk about how you feel that art is what we're all meant to do. And the hard work of creating art is something we all want. And I, it reminded me, this, this, this introduction reminded me of Gordon McKenzie's work, some of his work in orbiting the giant hairball. And I recently reread this when I was preparing to interview Brian Singer because he refers to that in some of his work and he's speaking later today. And so he talks about in um, his 1000 Journals movie, if you ask a kindergarten class, how many of them are artists? They'll all raise their hands. That's right. Ask the same question of sixth graders and maybe one third will respond. Ask high school graduates and few will admit to it. What happens to our creativity when we get older? Why does our creativity change over time? So I wanted to ask you what you thought. Why does, if we all want to be artists when we're in kindergarten, what happens when, when we get to graduating high school and few will admit it? Why does that change? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the reason, other than your uh, amazing body of work and passion that I wanted to come here is because of the people who are in this room. This is as close as many people get to do that thing that the outside world thinks of as art, like making things that are attractive and that can go on a wall or whatever. So the question I would ask the people in this room is, um, how many of you are limited in the work you do because you have lousy clients or bosses who ask you to do work that's banal? Raise your hand, right? And the problem is, that's bullshit. So that is because a problem, and it is bullshit. We, How do we deal with it? Well, because some people deal with it by making great art anyway. Some people deal with it by being the kind of designer they set out to, do, to become. And if the clients don't get it, then they better persuade the clients or get new clients. But the other way to deal with it in an industrialized world is to accept the fact that we are cogs in the system, and we just have to do the best we can given what is put onto us. And my thesis of humanity is that we are not squirrels. And if you watch squirrels in the fall, they all do the same thing, right? They hide the, the acorns and stuff. They never help each other out. And they don't do anything non-squirrel-like. They're just squirrels. That's their job, to be squirrels. We're beyond that, I would hope. And if we're spending a lot of time in squirrel-like behavior, we're selling ourselves short that there are so many people on this earth who don't have the leverage and the trust and the promise that we were lucky enough to be born with, right? That we got this huge head start. And to use it to just hide acorns feels to me like a cop-out. And that when we see the designers that we admire and the people that we look up to, they also have lousy clients. They also have bosses that are pushing them to fit in, but they refuse, right? Because it's hard to refuse, and that's the work. The work isn't kerning. Everyone here knows how to kern. That when I was learning design um, from John McWade in the before and after days of freehand 3.0, <laughs> you had to trap by hand, right? If you wanted to color print, you had to like go to each letter and make it a little bigger to do trapping. No one knows how to do that anymore because it just gets done for you. Kerning just gets done. It's not, that's not the craft. 
The craft is looking the client in the eye and saying, no. That's the part the computer is never going to be able to do for us. Malcolm was talking about this yesterday with Didi Gordon and was talking about how we need to be a bit disagreeable. Um, and, and Didi asked a really important question, and I don't know if we really got to um, an answer, and it would be interesting to get your perspective. How do you become disagreeable, or how do you say no and still manage to keep your client? Right. And, and Malcolm said, well, Didi, you know, clearly you've been doing it, you're successful. But for those that are afraid to do it, or for those that don't know how to do it, right. or for those who just have never done it, how do you do it? How do you get the courage to do it? All right, so... I got to do the one-minute Steve Pressfield catch-up, and then we can get onto it. So Steve wrote The War of Art, and I was lucky enough to publish Do the Work, which is the beginner's version of War of Art. And he talks about the resistance. And the resistance, which I call the lizard brain, is your amygdala. It's the brain center right here. It is so much closer to your spinal cord that it can short-circuit what you're really thinking a second and a half before your creative mind kicks in. So the, the, my simple example is you're on the airplane, let's pretend you have a degree in aeronautical engineering and you're at 20,000 feet, you know that turbulence has never once caused the plane to crash. Turbulence hits the plane, you don't keep typing, you use your entire force of will to keep the plane aloft, right? Lucky for them, you were on the plane to save the day, right? Who hasn't done that? And, and you don't have this whole conversation with yourself about you know forces and physics, you just keep the plane aloft. Well, the resistance is where we get writer's block. No one gets talker's block. No one wakes up in the morning going, mm, but we, we have to write something down and all of a sudden we freeze. We have to hand something in and that's why we have a charrette. The charrette exists because we've been stalling for three months because that would be scary, but now it's even scarier to show up at the meeting with nothing. So the last 24 hours, everyone gets created. The discipline here then is to first understand that no might mean you want to make art, but no might also mean you're hiding. That being disagreeable is a perfect way to hide from criticism. Because if you're disagreeable enough, you won't have any customers. You won't have to do anything scary. So there's, you know, there, there's the, the well-known curmudgeon Kenny Shopson who had that little restaurant in New York. Well, he had a whole bunch of stuff going on in his head, and one of the things he's got going on is if you're annoying enough, customers aren't going to come. And if customers aren't going to come, you're not going to be on the hook. So I think we have to be disagreeable in the service of the client, not disagreeable in the service of the resistance. That when we are disagreeable, we're doing it on behalf of the client achieving more, not our ego achieving more, right? Not us being more famous, but the client getting more of what he or she wants. Now, that means you've got to pick clients, not who pay, but who want the things that you want. And that mindset is what informs lots of great firms that don't get bigger. If you've decided not to get bigger, that means the only way to take a new client is to fire an old client. And if you adopt that mindset, suddenly you have total leverage over your clients. Because you're sitting there, your work keeps getting better and better, and the client's being disagreeable and not wanting to do the thing that's best for them. You say, you know what? Our firm policies, we can't grow, so we're going to have to get rid of a client to take a new one. I have great clients who want to come in. Do you want to do this or not? Right? And once you are seen as the person who enables great clients to do great things, you will get greater clients. If you are seen as the freelancer or the firm that helps mediocre clients get work with no hassle, 
Who do you think you're going to attract? Mediocre work, mediocre clients that yeah. don't have any. But they might pay on time. Yeah. So do you? Are you? <laughs> so do you? Are you a a person that feels that designers and design firms should stay small? I think that. Uh, well, quick little. Uh, this is another riff that I found very helpful with people. How many of you would describe yourselves as freelancers? Raise your hand. And how many of you are entrepreneurs? And how many of you have a job? Okay. Uh, a freelancer is someone who gets paid when they work. You don't work, you don't get paid. An entrepreneur is someone who builds a business bigger than themselves. So Larry Ellison is an entrepreneur. He doesn't code, he doesn't do a lot of sales calls, he doesn't do advertising. He just hires people over and over again to do work that he could have done mediocrely, but he finds people better than him to do it build something bigger than himself. Freelancers can move forward by getting better work and getting paid more to do that work. But they can't get move forward by hiring other freelancers to do the work they were gonna do because it just doesn't scale. So if you wanna grow a design firm, you have a challenge, which is if you're an entrepreneur, you can only grow by hiring people who are cheaper than you to do work that you can mark up and scale. I think that design at its core thrives when a human being cares enough to do work that touches another. It doesn't thrive when it gets more efficient. And computers have made it so that scale doesn't even help us that much. So in my instinct, if I want to hire an architect or a designer or someone to write a libretto for me, is I want to find someone who is the person who's going to do the work and is so good at it, it scares me. Right? Why does that, that be scarier? Because they're going to push an envelope to go farther than I would have gone, because that's what they do. That's what they're for. If all I want is someone to do something I write down, I can find someone cheaper than you, right? The goal is to find someone to do something I couldn't imagine. And those sorts of people sometimes, but rarely, work for giant institutions. They often say, I need to control what I do and who I do it for, so I'm gonna do it here. And if we can adopt a mindset of better, not more, it's likely we'll get better. I want to talk with you about anxiety. Okay. And this also has a lot to do with the lizard brain, which um, is such a pervasive part of our personality. I don't think people realize how much we're controlled by the reptilian brain and how it is involuntary. Everything that we, everything that we engage in in the world through the reptilian brain is something we can't control. So if we nearly get hit by a car, that surge of adrenaline isn't something we think about. We don't think, hmm, let me get that adrenaline going so that I can exactly. move out of the way of the car. It's instantaneous and it does take over everything else. And that part of the brain keeps us paralyzed when it comes to being able to embrace change. Yep. Because the reptilian brain wants to keep us safe. It wants to keep us in control. It wants to keep us from being vulnerable. And everything that we need to do to move forward in humanity, in our jobs, in our relationships, requires being vulnerable, which is what the reptilian brain doesn't want us to do. Right, so I want to stop you there, because you just said something super important, and everyone's resistance didn't want to hear what you just said. So I'm going to let really? you, I'm going to let you ask your question in a minute, but the way I'm restating it is, Everyone in this room has chosen a job where the way to succeed at the job is to deal with the resistance. 
There are other jobs where you don't have to do that, right? The cop who showed us in here in the back room, right? Most of the time, if you're a cop, not getting shot is an important part of your job, right? And understanding the, the terms and conditions and procedures of being a cop is essential, right? There's a lot of rules and they train you to do it the same way every day. No one says, you're the most creative cop. We'll put you in a movie, right? That's what movie cops do. But in real life, that's not what we're looking for. But everyone here chose to do this for a living. So let's proceed now that we understand that we all opted in to dealing with this problem. So in relation to the anxiety that we feel about change, I, I talk to my undergraduate students and I warn them that if they're waiting to feel a certain way about themselves before they do something, well, I feel anxiety now, but when I feel better about myself, I'll then pursue that. I tell them that is never going to happen. Correct. You are never going to go to a place where you're like, okay, now I'm ready to change. Um, so you write about how anxiety is experiencing failure in advance. Right. The most profound sentence I've ever written in my whole life. It's fantastic. Anxiety is experiencing failure in advance. Tell yourself enough vivid stories about the worst possible outcome of your work and you'll soon come to believe them. Worry is not preparation and anxiety doesn't make you better. So why do we do it? Why do we worry? Why do we have anxiety? What does it do for us? Well, it is an accidental byproduct of the modern age that if we are living on the savanna and the plains in a little village of 30 nomadic people, it is essential that we worry. It is essential that saber-toothed tigers do not eat us, and it is essential that we do not offend the chief. Because if you offend the chief and he throws you out, you're going to die. So our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents only passed on their genes to us because they learned that lesson. The ones who didn't get that idea died with no children, <laughs> right? So it is built into us the same way flower, sunflowers follow the sun. That's what we did to survive. We only in the last 150 years, it's only 150 years old, did we invent this idea that dancing with fear was something that the economy would pay us to do. Do you think we're going to evolve out of that? Do you think no. that there's going to be? Why not? Because designers don't have more kids than everybody else. <laughs> but what about the successful people that embrace change? Will they pass on their genes to their... Well, the way you pass on genes is by having more kids. Okay. Right? That's the way evolution works, unfortunately. Their cultural evolution has certainly shifted. Right. Culturally, we have evolved an enormous amount. A hundred years ago... The thought that you would go to your family and say, I'm not going to take a job, I'm going to start a, a project, or I'm going to be a freelancer, was insane, right? That, that the Industrial Revolution was just getting up and going, you went to the factory culturally. Oh, yeah. And nobody right. talks about being so, happy in their right. jobs. So we've changed culturally, so now it's okay to do that with, with less anxiety, that Silicon Valley has created this culture that... You know, New York, you hang out in certain neighborhoods, there's this culture. Well, of course, you're going to be in the project world. So that eliminates some of what we perceive as anxiety. So a, a little aside here, I spent a little bit of time working with the poorest people on earth in India and other places. And if you talk to somebody whose parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents lived at the subsistence level, $3 a day, that person has never shopped for something in their life. Never once have they bought something that they have never bought before. 
Try to imagine that. You have probably bought something you never bought before today, right? But never once in their life. So if you go to them and say, would you like to buy this solar lantern? It will pay for itself in 90 days. You don't have to use kerosene anymore. Most people will say no. Because the cultural anxiety of taking that tiny step is so huge because it's one step away from dying if you're wrong. We're lucky enough that we're surrounded by cultural memes that say, no, we need to take. So that is going to change the culture. But our problem of instantly going from this might not work to they will realize I'm a fraud to I will never get another job to I will lose my home to I will die literally takes an eighth of a second. That he just described my whole life. Right. right? <laughs> and so what's happening is your caller ID is there. It's your boss's boss. You don't go, oh, good. They finally realized how good I am. Here's my promotion. <laughs> you see the ring and you say, I'm dead. It's like that instantly. And you're sitting there trying to design something, right? And in your head, the dialogue, you don't even hear the dialogue. It's just, I better not go there because it's not proven enough. I better buy a dummy's guide instead that will show me what the defensible thing is. And what we see culturally is it's the indefensible that changes us. It's when we make an indefensible thing that people, some, are attracted to it. And now that we're living in weird world where more people are on the fringes, where mass media, mass marketing, mass merchandising are going away, all that's left is to make the thing someone would cross the street for. Right? So I'm not supposed to talk about your book. I'm going to talk about your book. People cross the street to buy that book. Many people want nothing to do with it. But most people don't want to buy any book. But the people who cross the street for your book would miss it if you hadn't made it. And that is what we do for a living. We dance with the resistance. We don't make it go away. You cannot make it go away. You cannot make the voice go away. You cannot make the fear go away because it's built in. What you can do is when it shows up, you say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Let's dance about this. Okay. I need to unpack that a little bit. I can viscerally understand what you're saying, but the idea of actually dancing, dancing with the resistance, dancing with the fear, that is really challenging. And I think it's something that people think that they should do or want to be able to think that they can do. But taking even that first step mm -hmm. is enormously difficult. Yep. Um, first of all, I'm a person that says no. I'm, I, as much as I will say yes to any opportunity, when it comes time to making change, I'm like, no, no. I like to do everything the same way every day, and I'd like to be able to do that for the rest of my life. Eat the same food, sleep in the same bed, sleep, it's all the same. How she, do you, she's lying right now. No, I'm not. I swear, am I lying? Everybody that knows me, no, but, am I lying? But, but, I'm not lying. Everybody says, no, she's know, not lying. Here's how I know you're not lying. Here's how I know you're lying, right? Because you're sitting on a stage with someone you've never talked to in person before. Because you were doing something new by choice. You would like, part of you, would like to just completely give in. But the other part of you, the part of you that is revered, the part of you that people look up to, the part of you that you honor as the best you, can't tolerate that. So you keep dancing with the fear. Well, thank you for, for that. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's go back to the book. Um, 
Um, I want to talk about effort. You say effort isn't the point. Impact is. And I remember um, this, this really sort of came alive for me when I was thinking about uh, last year I had a student um, in my graduate program that was really, really struggling. And he was struggling so much and he was having such a hard time grasping the work that it became really clear to the faculty and the staff of the program that he might not make it. And so we had to sit down with him with the provost. It was very, very serious. Like when he got that call, he was not like, oh, right. a promotion. <laughs> um, we had to sit down with him and we, we talked with him about what needed to change. And he couldn't understand. All he kept saying was, but I'm working so hard. I'm working so hard. I'm trying so hard. And finally, the provost looked at him and said, it's not about how hard you try. It's about what you actually do when you're trying. And so this, this really felt so important now in, in our culture, sort of showing up isn't enough. And, and how do you encourage people to get the best out of them? How do you encourage people to attempt to do something and not just feel good about attempting, right. but actually, I don't want to use the word accomplishing because it feels like there is sort of a prize at the end, but, but fully showing up and knowing that they're exactly. making the best that they can do. Yeah. Um, my late friend and teacher, Zig Ziglar, Zig. talked about Great. the difference between a wandering generality and a meaningful specific. So I want to answer the first unanswered question from a couple of minutes ago and integrate it with this, which is there's a huge advantage to small, both small in risk and small in boundaries. So when I used to teach at NYU, this was early days of cell phones, I said, your homework assignment is to bring in a cell phone next week. So everyone brought in their cell phone. You had to used to ask people to do that. And I said, all right. <laughs> in the prehistoric days. I need someone to come to the front of the room. Here's a phone number. While we are all watching, I want you to call this number and sell the person who answers a subscription to Time Magazine. Such a good now, The magic here is there, you can't deny the presence of Time Magazine. We can't have an argument at Time Magazine. It's not a good magazine. But it's, it's, it's here. Everyone knows what it is. I want you to get on the phone and sell it. And 100% of the grade in the class was class participation. There were no tests, no nothing. One third of the people in the room refused to do the exercise. They refused to dance with that fear in front of their peers. What exactly is the risk? What could happen? The person would hang up. Like, I knew who was being called. These were phone numbers of my friends, right? <laughs> so it's not like you were going to get arrested or anything. Did they have a script when they No, when they, they, were I, they were just, I didn't tell them they were going to be called. <laughs> I just put down their phone numbers. <laughs> Because I wasn't going to spam strangers, but spamming my friends would be different. You gave them Malcolm so, Gladwell's so phone the, number, the, didn't you? The, the, lesson, the lesson is that when we say, I'm working really hard, what we often mean is, and I'm tweeting all the time, making sure my Facebook page is groomed, my website is up to date, I've gone to this meeting and that meeting and this thing, and I've read this thing, and we're a wandering generality. That what we need to do is say, what's the smallest, tiniest thing that I can master? And what's the scariest thing I can do in front of the smallest number of people that can teach me how to dance with the fear? Right? That once we get good at that, we just realized it's not fatal. And it's not intellectually realized. We lived something that wasn't fatal. 
And that idea is what's so key because then you can do it a little bit more. And once you're on that spectrum, it's just more of the same. That one of my uh, favorite movie stills is Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. And you see the, ep the key turning point moment. And he's dancing and it's raining. And you know what's in his hand? An umbrella. An umbrella. But it's not called singing with an umbrella, so he doesn't <laughs> open the umbrella, right? He's holding the umbrella. He could open it, but he doesn't. And it's the fact that he doesn't open the umbrella that makes that moment magical. So all of us have an umbrella. We all have deniability. We can all copy what came before. We can all go to one more meeting and hide behind one more set of bullet points. Or we can put the umbrella away. When you put the umbrella away, that's when effort turns into impact. Because you're not using effort to hide, using effort to make a difference. So let's go back to your students that you asked to make the phone call, and a third of them didn't. I understand that they were afraid to make the phone call. But it, it's, is it back to that lizard brain why they're afraid? Of course. So what are they afraid of? That they're going to be told no or that they're going to be hung up on? Or Yeah, they're all versions of being a fraud, getting thrown out of the village and being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. They're all exactly the same thing. So what I find so remarkable now about the opportunity we have with the telephone in an office situation is that people don't get phone calls anymore. Everybody's doing everything now via email and via text. So I've been talking to all of my undergraduate students. You want an opportunity? Ask for the opportunity. Call people. Call them. Because they're sitting at their desks and nobody calls them. So they're going to likely answer their phone because they're not barraged with phone calls anymore. And yet, when they still know that there's a possibility that Massimo Vignelli might actually answer his phone, because that's how I got to him. He, I called him one day and he actually answered the phone. They still are afraid to do it because they're afraid to ask. They're afraid to ask for opportunities. How do you, what can you tell the people in the audience today that want something more than they have, how they could ask for it or how they could go for it? Okay, well, I am thrilled that there is an aversion to calling people on the phone, cold calling. <laughs> I think we should maintain that aversion throughout. I know, you're an opt-out person for sure. Um, but the difference between someone who wants more and isn't getting it and you who wants more and is getting it is back to this idea of what are we truly afraid of, right? That I am more afraid of settling. I am more afraid of not giving what I can give than I am afraid of doing it. And so when we sit quietly, there's a debate we have to have with ourselves all the time, which is, what is my work? And if my work is to have more impact, I don't think we start by asking. I think we start by giving. I think we say, who can I give to anonymously, often, with no recompense? And how do I do it more often? How do I figure out how to get to do the, the, the giving I am most afraid of as often as I can? Because once you get hooked on that culturally, then doors open, right? Doors open because your work precedes you, that you are your work, not your resume, but the ruckus you have made before, the people that you have touched before. I love talking about the Proofrock coffee shop in London. And he's got one of those frequent buyer cards where you get eight stamps, you get a free cup of coffee. But it's not eight coffees from him you have to get. 
he has listed his eight biggest competitors. You have to go to the eight best espresso bars in London, and then if you still want to come back, he'll give you a free cup. Now, do you think he called these people up and said, I'll do this for you if you'll do it for me? No, he just did it because he cares more about coffee culture than he cares about his market share. How has it impacted his business? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> right? I care about the fact that he cares about the culture and the community because that, can you name someone who has built a life around that who's a failure? I can't. Right? So I grew up with two unbelievable parents. My dad was the volunteer head of the United Way. My mom was the first woman on the board of the art museum. And, you know, they weren't the richest people in town, but they said, what we do is this. What we do is feed the community first. And if you do those sorts of things, then you get better at dancing with fear. And then the world starts to notice that there's only one person around who's really good at dancing with fear and is so generous, and a line forms outside the door. And that's when you get to start making the work you want to make, not because you cold called someone. And so what about money? Okay. Because you talked about, we, you asked people how many people had a job that was banal or that they weren't really fully engaged in, and a lot of people raised their hands. My guess is that the reason that they're staying in that job, or at least the reason that they're telling themselves that they're staying in that job, right. is because they have to pay the rent, they have to take care of their kids, they have to do all the things that you need to do to live and not end up in the street a bad lady or a bad man. Um, how do you break that cycle? How do you decide, okay, I want to do this, do you do it in addition? Do you self-generate your work in the evenings and the weekends right. to make a difference? Or do you look for something else while you're in a job, which is really, really hard? How do you, how do you make that fundamental shift into living the life that you want to live? Right. So there's this collision then of the cultural and the resistance and many other things, which is I would like to make art, but I'd like to do it while making a steady income. <laughs> right. And I want to make sure that that steady income is respected by everyone around me and has no uncertainty associated with it. Well, there's a good reason why not a lot of people make art, and that's one of them, right? If you read, or better, listen to Patti Smith's uh, book about her and Robert called it's Just Kids. I, I mean, what an emotional thing. But she was homeless. For years, homeless, living on bread from the garbage can, sleeping in the park to make her art. And what's fascinating about the first third of the book is never once does she say, I'm a homeless person. She says, I'm an artist who hasn't found her muse yet. She's on her way to being an artist, and the homelessness is a temporary moment. So no one here has to become homeless, right? But what I'm saying is, if you care enough to dance, and to make this art. It might be that you need to spend two days a week doing something that isn't in your wheelhouse that makes you enough money to make your art. It may be that your art never pays you money. It may be that you just stop watching TV and stop using social media and use all that time to make art that you love and give away in whatever form that art takes. And you do something else to pay the bills, right? But what the industrial economy seduced us into believing is that the deal was simple. You work all day doing something you're not proud of, and you decompress at night with television and a whiskey, and on weekends, you can go for a run, right? Then do that forever, and then 40 years from now, you're dead. That's the deal. And Sounds we sold like that deal to a lot of people. 
But there's this other deal, which is we will laugh at you, we will jeer you, you will be on the verge of bankruptcy, people will tell you you're a fraud, you're never going to amount to anything, you will fail and you will fail and you will fail, and then you'll be dead. And that's a different path that's available to people if they want it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Light me up. And, you know, but the fascinating yeah. thing, I was talking before we sat down today with the people who run this event, they run a knitting show. Right? They're, maybe the crocheting show is separate from the knitting show. I wasn't really sure. It might be part of the knitting show. Now, you can make a lot of money running a knitting show, and you don't even have to like knitting. And the fact is that there are plenty of people that I know, that you know, who do a thing that maybe takes a day a week or happens once a year, and they use the revenue from that to make their art. And those don't have to always be the same thing. It's only very recently that they've become the same thing. Poetry is another great example. You know, other than Sarah Kay, no one's making a living as a poet today, right? But we don't have a poetry shortage. Because if you <laughs> care enough about making poetry, you'll make poetry. And it just turns out that the way our culture works now, if you get really good at anything, often people will show up to pay you for it. But don't compromise on the way to getting good just because you have to make a living, because then you will make a living and you won't be good. So it's about going to the edge, finding your edge and owning it. You've talked about, you've used the word fraud three times today in our conversation and the whole sort of fraud syndrome that people experience that, and, and so I, and because it was, it's a big theme throughout this book, I went and looked at the Wikipedia entry for what's called imposter syndrome. And it says, it's the psychological phenomenon in which people are unable to internalize their accomplishments despite external evidence of competence. Those with the syndrome remain convinced that they are frauds and do not deserve the success they have achieved. Proof of success is dismissed as luck, timing, or a result of deceiving others into thinking they are more intelligent and competent than they believe themselves to be. Why is that such a pervasive theme now in people that have achieved anything? There is not one person, Seth, not one person in all of the interviews that I did and how to think like a great graphic designer that didn't talk about feeling like a phony. The yeah. only two were Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli, and they're both in their 80s, and I attribute it to that. By the time you're 80, it's like, what the, you know. So what is it about this imposter syndrome, this fraud complex, it's like an epidemic. Yeah, Milton threw me out of his class. He did? Yes. How fabulous. He had me leave to never return. <gasps> um, Why? A, what did you do? Do I have enough time to tell the whole story? Absolutely. Well, so he, he, he teaches this portfolio class at the School of Visual Arts. So you, in order to get in, you have to bring your portfolio and then he lets you in. And the way the class works, I don't know if he still does, maybe he still does. The way the class works is there's 45, 50 people in the class, and every week he gives you an assignment, and then you would go away and spend 5, 10, 30 hours making a thing, bring it in, and put it all around the wall. And then he would spend the whole class critiquing what was on the wall. That was the class. This was before desktop publishing, right at the beginning of desktop publishing. And so all the other people in the class were design firms that had access to all these tools, and so they were bringing in beautiful things. Well, I got there and I had had a, my background had been hiring designers. My background had been shipping software products, making stuff that people actually bought. And I thought if I could go through this class, I would get better 
a little bit at making stuff, but really good at knowing what to pick. And uh, he said, no, you can't take my class. And I said, but I think I'll add a useful perspective here. He said, no. I said, tell you what, I'll come to a class, and if you don't think I'm adding any value, I won't come back. So I come to the first class, and I'd been to business school, so I knew his case method thing, and he was put, getting away with stuff he shouldn't have been getting away with, because the designers <laughs> were all like this. And so I called him out once or twice, and it was a good interaction. So he said, yes, you can come back next week. And so I came back the next week. And after the second time, when it became clear that I had figured out where he was going, he said, you shouldn't come back to my class. <laughs> so that was my Milton Glaser experience. All a long way of saying that uh, even in sports, where we can measure things to a tenth of a second, it's so easy in our culture to be able to deny that you are good at something, right? Because Lance Armstrong cheated, lots of other people in sports cheat. So we're, we're surrounded by this mindset that how did I get picked and what is going on here and it, will it happen again tomorrow? Because if you're not sure it's gonna happen again tomorrow, and for all artists that has to be the case, right? Jeff Koons is gonna do something weird that might not work one day, right? So we have this active amygdala that's trying to get us to stop doing it. And it finds the flaw in our culture, which is you're not guaranteed it's gonna work. So everyone feels like a fraud. What's fascinating is it shows itself in so many different ways. Donald Trump is sure he's a fraud and he acts to counter it by acting like an obnoxious blowhard, right? Who pretends he's not a fraud. And I think that Milton is in the same category that Milton is confident in his work, but one of the ways that he's able to keep doing his work is by pretending he's supremely confident. Because all of us, if we are really gonna dance with the muse, if we're really going to find that place to do something that hasn't been done before, that matters, that might not work, that's generous, we have to be activating this or we're a psychopath. And there are very few designers who are psychopaths. I I was talking, I interviewed Danny Shapiro recently. Um, she's written two remarkable memoirs um, and a book that she just came out with called Still Writing. And it's about sort of continuing to show up and do that. And she made a really um, important distinction between confidence and courage. And she talked about how she felt the artist actually doesn't really need confidence all that much, that you tend to do better art when you are questioning yourself, when you are pushing what is possible. She actually felt that, that courage was the key ingredient yep. to be able to do something because you have to, because you want to, despite not feeling confident. Yeah. So, so there's almost a, you know, a, a Bob Dylan lyric here that I can't remember exactly but about weather which is that for the designer, what's going on outside is trivial compared to what's going on inside. That if you say, well, of course I'm anxious because this is happening in the outside world. Of course this is a special case because the economy is like this. Of course, because my boss is this or this or this or my client is this, that's why I feel this way. That's bogus. Because other people have dealt with weather like that and not felt the way you are feeling in this moment. Don't try to change the structure of the outside world and then you'll be fine, then you'll be creative, and then you'll be brave. No, first figure out how to be creative 
and brave and courageous, and the outside world will change on your behalf. But if you spend all your time rationalizing to yourself or to your friends, why in this particular case, you have, you know, and as a public speaker, I get more anxious before I speak to 20,000 people than 200 people. That's ridiculous. Because I can't see back there. I can just see the same number of people no matter how many people I'm speaking to. But in my head, there's this whole monologue that's always going on about why this particular case allows me to be freaking out. <laughs> and it's not. It's always the same case. It's always the case of you are a human trying to connect to another human. And if you just pick one human that you can change for the better with work that might not work, that's what art is. Right. Speaking of one human to another, I thought this might be an appropriate time to open up some questions to the audience. Oh, cool. Yeah. And have them ask you what they okay. want to know. Can we turn up the house lights? Thank you for being such a great audience. We have someone right there. Ah, Tom Goriello, Dr. Goriello. Do you know everyone here by name? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's see. possible. <laughs> Wait, we have a microphone, yeah. amazingly. Thank you. So you spoke a lot about the, um, the effects of the uh, lizard brain and other parts of the unconscious that affect the way we work and what we do. Um, the thing about the unconscious is that we're not conscious of it. And so I, I wondered, um, do you have a personal discipline or practice that helps you to continually um, reference and learn about your own unconscious and what would you recommend for others to do? Okay, thank you, Tom. Um, I do, and I guess it, it's got a couple pieces. First of all, the thing to understand about the amygdala, it is a blunt instrument. It only has a couple chemicals that it can flood your brain with. It's not what teaches you to play the piano. And so when we are afraid of falling off a cliff or being on a roller coaster or telling the truth to our spouse, it's exactly the same feeling. That we would like it to have different colors, but it doesn't. So first, we understand what that feeling is. We understand when it's starting to come and what it means when it's there. Then the conscious brain, at least for me, says, got it, you've just given me a compass. Now most people say, the compass says, go the other way. And what I'm saying to myself is, thank you for showing me that this is the way for me to go next. So I wanna do some testing on it. Is it you know, good for the people I'm working with? Does it match who I am in public and in private before I go race that down that road? Right? So that's why I'm not going to get into a stock car and race it, because that would make me equally scared, but it's stupid. And, <laughs> but once it's there, if you learn to welcome it, something magical has just happened to your career. Because now you can bring it whenever you want it, and it's in that moment it is telling you where the dangerous place lies, and that is what people are going to pay for, that is what people are going to ask you for, to do dangerous stuff that they're not willing to do. We're going to try for the house lights again, but if you oh, think, oh someone has a microphone. Hello. There you go. Hi. Um, what is the bravest thing that you've ever done? You want to go first? <laughs> She's not asking me. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just trying to be generous. <laughs> Having kids. 
And there's nothing even close. I wrote, if you have kids, I wrote an ebook called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's free. Uh, it's been read about four million times, but that's not nearly enough. And I hope that you will send it to the teachers and to the school board and to the other parents, because what we have done is built a public school industry that is designed by industrialists to create compliant workers for their system. That's what it was for when we built it. You may not know this, but we are in Massachusetts, the home of the first teacher's college. Do you know what it's called? No. The normal college, because it was designed to train people to get kids to be normal. And um, this manifesto that I wrote basically argues we should only be teaching kids two things in school, which is how to lead and how to solve interesting problems. And we don't teach them either of those things, and I think we need to do that. There's a gentleman over here. Hey, Seth. Hi. The dip changed my life, man. I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you. Up front. But uh, quick question for you. As far as fear goes, how do you overcome that, man? Like, on a daily basis, like, what's your biggest fear? I mean, you speak about it so much. I'm just curious. Well, I've never overcome my fear. That's sort of what I'm, what I'm arguing here. Uh, one of the easiest things that I can propose is that there are lots of things all of us do that we're afraid of because we have to. The question is, how do you create a have to around your art? So in my case, I blog every single day. I'm not allowed to blog three times a day, and I'm not allowed to blog zero times a day. I blog every single day. Well, once your subconscious knows that there's another blog post due, it will find one for you, <laughs> right? Because it's worse to not have one. And that habit of being able to say, I'm going to do something today I have never done before, that I've done now 5,600 times in a row, that really pays off. So if you can get into this habit of, another example is form a group of six people and meet once a week and know that you have to show those five people something you did that you have never done before. You will be more afraid of letting those people down than you will be of doing the work. And so your art gets better. Accountability, I love it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. We have time for one last question. I think uh, there's a woman. Oh, there's a, we already have somebody queued up. Sorry. Hi. Hi. Um, you talked a little bit about the money side of this, but um, you know, from a from a time and energy perspective, and thinking about um, family and other obligations in your life, and really trying to you know be the best person that you can be, how do you um, can you give some advice on balancing you know really trying to put your art out there and, and finding sort of that real work balance in terms of more on a personal side with time and energy and just really trying to put yourself out there in the right ways. Yeah, I think it's gonna be different for everybody. My, my career, I was at the verge of bankruptcy for more than six, eight years in a row. Like literally within a week of having to stop everything. So my first book uh, for $5,000, I got half of it. And then I got 900 rejection letters in a row. And we used to go window shopping in restaurants and eat macaroni and cheese for dinner. These are choices. You don't have to make these choices, but I chose to, to do that. And um, I don't think you have to sign up for a life of poverty to make art. There's lots of kinds of art. You can look uh, a foster kid in the eye and care about that kid. That is a form of art. You are putting yourself at risk. 
You can be a big brother. That is a form of art if you treat it that way. So I think that we have to be careful not to fall in love with art is what Debbie and Milton make, that maybe art is just what it is to live a life where you are aware of your fear and aware of your ability to be compassionate and connected. And that might be enough. But if you want to do art on a different stage where you are seen as one in a thousand or one in 10,000, understand there's 999 other people who are also sacrificing to get there. And it might require more than you are willing to give to get to that place. I'm, if there was an easy path, I promise I would tell you, but I don't know what it is. Thank you, Seth Govin. Go make a rocket. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. No Q&A this week, but we will include them next week. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.